Welcome to the Supernatural Virtue Podcast, where we offer free episodes discussing important truths of the Catholic Church from the perspectives of faith and reason. Our goal is to help you unpack the dense theological tradition of the Church so that you, your family, or your parish community can grow in faith and love. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Experience Catholicism on the Supernatural Virtue Podcast. My name is Tommy Schultz and today we're going to be talking about an introduction to the catechism. Okay, so as I mentioned in the intro, you know, when we first look at a catechism, maybe a couple things come to mind. Whoa, that's a lot of teachings of the church or that's a lot of rules that Catholics have to follow or do we need to pass a test before we become Catholic, this sort of thing. You know, if you have a physical catechism, I think it's very intimidating at at first glance to open it up and to try and read a paragraph and especially not really know what's going on if you kind of open up to the middle and you get just a paragraph out of context. You know, that could be really difficult. Um, But the catechism really is this beautiful way to enter into and experience, to start to experience the faith. The catechism was given to us, um, it was kind of a lot of bishops around the world were asking for one place that people could go for the church's teachings, you know, kind of one place that people could go to learn what it means to be Catholic. And so in 1992, the catechism was promulgated by St. John Paul II officially. And actually, that's an interesting fact. That's the year I was born. So I like to say it's my gift to the church, right? But I had nothing to do with writing it. But All of these great scholars, bishops, cardinals came together and drafted this catechism, and then the Pope signed off on it in 1992 and and promulgated it for the whole church. And really what it's meant to be is a teaching document for the church, not only for teachers in the church who are handing on the faith, but really, and and also for bishops, of course, whose main role is to hand on the faith and to teach those in their dioceses but also for lay people who are wondering what the church teaches. This is a really easy way to go and look up, you know, a certain question about the Catholic faith or even a certain word. You'll notice that in the catechism, you can go to the back and you can look up certain words and see where the teachings of the church are um, applied basically to that word, right? So it's very easy to look up different questions, different words that you might struggle with, and you can see exactly where it is in the catechism. I think the catechism is one of the most beautiful gifts to the church that we've been given in a long, long time. And um, so that's why I want to kind of unpack it throughout this whole course is because, you know, there are a lot of different ways that you can approach RCIA or OCIA, as, it, as it's now called. RCIA is the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. OCIA, the, the name was changed a couple years ago. It just means Order of Christian Initiation for Adults. And it's simply the process by which people become Catholic. And there's a lot of different ways that people can approach it. There's a lot of different programs on there. But I like to go right to the source and just see what the Catholic Church teaches straight from the catechism. All right, so if you open up your catechism, or if you're following along online, we're going to go right before the very first paragraph in the catechism. And I think this is really important because the the catechism starts off with Scripture. So we hear from John 17, 3, from 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, and from Acts 4, 12. 
And so I'm going to read these verses to you, but I think this is really important that the catechism starts here because the entire point of the church, the entire point of the catechism, the entire reason that we're here is, again, as I said in the intro, not just to learn facts about who God is, but to actually allow God to transform our lives and to dive deeper into relationship with him, to allow him really to be our God in a personal way, in a way that we've maybe never experienced before. That's the entire point of why the church got together and promulgated this massive document about all of our teachings is not so that people could just be smarter about who God is, but that they could actually fall more in love with him, that they could actually grow in their relationship with him. Okay, so from John 17, 3, right at the very beginning of the catechism, we hear, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So right from the very beginning, and we're going to see this in the sections on the creeds, that the creeds are all about, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entering more deeply and saying, I believe in this Trinitarian love of God. But right here off the bat, we see this, that we have the Father and we have the Son, and that the whole purpose here of our lives is to know God the Father and to know God the Son, to know God the Father and to know Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 through 4, then says, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I don't know everyone's background who's probably listening to this right now. We all have different backgrounds. We're all on different journeys. But maybe some of us feel like I'm too far gone or I don't know enough or I don't have a theology degree, so I don't know if I can grasp all of this or I've sinned way too many times. I don't know that God even loves me. Well, here, straight from the word of God, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, this truth that we're going to be talking about all throughout the catechism isn't exclusive to people with a degree, isn't exclusive to people who are maybe more intelligent or have a higher IQ. This truth that we're going to be talking about is a truth that's accessible to all because this truth has a name. This truth is Jesus Christ, that God our Savior desires all men to be saved. So if this is you today, where you're kind of thinking, I don't know if I'm worthy of this. I've sinned so much. I've done these, this and that and the other. God's saying, guess what? You're wrong. You are worthy of this. You are worthy of my love. And God's ultimate desire, his deepest desire, is that all men come to be saved and come to know the knowledge of the truth. Then we have Acts 4.12. It says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, than the name of Jesus. I love that it starts off with this this way because sometimes our brothers and sisters, our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, maybe have a bad understanding of what the church teaches. Um, I think a lot of people assume that we worship Mary and we worship the saints and and we kind of put God on the back burner. But here at the very beginning of the catechism, it's abundantly clear. The name of Jesus is the only name by which we are saved. 
There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And we need to believe that as Catholics, that our salvation is not coming from ourselves. It's not coming from our works. It's not coming from how often we pray or how well we pray. Salvation ultimately at the end of the day. Now, don't get me wrong. All of those things are helpful. All of those things are necessary. We must pray. We must do good works. We must, um, you know, obey the commandments, all of these things. But ultimately, salvation comes from God alone. And salvation, really, if we want to be more explicit about it, as Acts 4.12 is, salvation comes from Jesus Christ. And so I love that it starts off with these three verses because what it's showing us is that this catechism, what it's all about, is constantly drawing us back to the face of Christ, constantly inviting us deeper into his love. So as we go through some of these teachings, and some of these teachings might be really hard, some of them might be foreign to those listening, some of them might be difficult to grasp. I mean, theologians for the next several thousand years are going to be talking about the Trinity and still getting no further than we are today, right? When we're talking about such an infinite God who is so far above us, it's hard to put that kind of experience into human words. And so we're constantly going to be trying our best to extrapolate, if you will, you know, the teachings of Christ. But at the end of the day, again, knowledge is good. It's important. But what's even more important than knowledge is that we enter into a deep relationship with Christ. Because what happens then, and this I think is why the Catechism starts off with Scripture, is when we're reading Scripture, what we're actually doing is inviting the Lord into our hearts. We're inviting the Trinity into our homes. And once we have God in our hearts, we can better understand who he is, not using our own words, but really listening to the one who is. All right, I want to mention the uh, catechism image. So if you have a physical catechism with you, you're going to notice an image either on the cover or within the first couple pages of the catechism. Every catechism has this image on it. This is the image that you see of a shepherd who's sitting down, and there is a sheep who is looking at this shepherd, and it's the image is kind of surrounded by a tree, and the shepherd is holding a staff and what we call panpipes. All right, so let's explain this image a little bit because it's on every catechism, so it must be important. And I think this image is a perfect way, it's kind of a lens to view what's going to be happening within the catechism, okay? So let's explain this a little bit. Obviously here, the image is of Jesus. So Jesus is a shepherd in this image, but he's also in the position of a teacher. So this takes a little bit of knowledge about the ancient Near East or the time of the Israelites in the Old Testament to really understand, although we also see this all throughout the New Testament as well. That in this time, when whenever somebody taught, typically they would sit down. Okay, so what do we have in this shepherd image? We have the good shepherd, as Jesus is kind of described all throughout scriptures. But we also have Jesus in this teaching role, that it's important right off the bat to note that Jesus is the one who's going to be teaching us. He is the ultimate teacher. So you might learn a couple things from me, but at the end of the day, it's going to be Jesus who is teaching you in your heart who's helping you to see the truth, who's helping you 
to full conversion, who's, who's literally converting your heart. That's not something I can do. Conversion is God's alone. I can give you truths about the faith. I can kind of help guide you, but I'm not going to be able to convert you at the end of the day. That act is, is an act of God alone. And so Jesus, as the good teacher and as the good shepherd, is all throughout this course and hopefully throughout the rest of your life going to just be giving you a, a, a very nice, beautiful invitation. Listen to me. Just a nice invitation of listen to my words. Let me help to teach you about who I am. Okay, we also have the shepherd's crook in his hand and um, something about the shepherd's crook. So these were used. The reason it has kind of the the end that it does of the staff, the little crooked end, um, is because a shepherd would use it if a sheep kind of goes astray. They would wrap it around the sheep's neck and kind of pull them back um, into safety. And this is what Jesus is constantly doing for us, that as we wander, as we sin, as we go through life and we experience difficult things, imagine Jesus just very softly, very gently, but profoundly, always just calling you back into his love. That's also why we have the pan pipes in the picture. Depending on how big your picture is, it might be difficult to see these, but he's holding pan pipes. And if you know anything about shepherds, pan pipes are kind of used to, you, you know, they're played in order for the sheep to hear it and to come back um, into the safety of the shepherd. And so again, it's this imagery of Jesus is constantly drawing back us back into his life and into his love. All right, now this image is surrounded by a tree. So this would mean a couple things. I think whenever we think of trees is when it relates to theology, my mind always goes back to Genesis. So we have two things in Genesis. We have the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where unfortunately Adam and Eve fell. But then we also have the tree of life. And what I want to talk about here is, is known as typology. It's just kind of a big theological word, but all that it means is Something in the Old Testament points us to something in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we have the image of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where the fall happened. But then in the New Testament, we have the new, quote-unquote, tree of life, so to speak, that of the cross. So you notice that the fall happens at a tree, and salvation also happens at a tree. That in both cases, we have this tree that's kind of the crux of what is going on, of what is about to happen. That Adam and Eve fell at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life was um, kind of blocked off from their access from that point on. But then, of course, we have the tree of the cross in the New Testament where we are given access to the Father, to the Trinity. We are given access to heaven through what Christ did on the cross. Another thing that this tree kind of denotes in this picture is in the ancient Near East, um, trees were very important because oftentimes you were traveling through a desert. So think of a tree as a point of oasis. And that's how we should think about the faith, the church, the catechism, is that it's this point of oasis where we can go and we can rest and we can be at peace and we can know that God is good. Um, if you think about the importance of trees in the ancient Near East as they're traveling through, if they if they hit an oasis spot, I mean, it's, it's a life-giving. And so is the church. And so is Christ. You think of the promised land that 
the Israelites were searching for for so long, and finally they get to the promised land and, and they have rest, they have peace. And it's the same with us. As we, as we journey through this course, keep this in the back of your mind as you read through the catechism that all of this is meant to bring us solace, peace. Um, we're meant to rest in the love of Christ. We, of course, have the sheep in this image who is looking intently at the teacher. And that's all of us. And sometimes, like sheep, we, we stray. We think that our ways are maybe a little bit better. And so we start to run. And again, Christ is always calling us back. So if we take this image and we think of it as like a stained glass window, when you see a stained glass window, the light reflects through it and it gives an image. Well, if we think of this as a stained glass window, this image, it's an image in which to see, if we look through it, it's an image in which to see what we're about to experience or discover through the catechism. And that is that we are going to discover the teachings of Christ, the Good Shepherd, who is constantly drawing us back into his love so that all throughout this journey we can experience his peace. All right, so with that, let's start with the Catechism, uh, paragraph 1. So it starts off with this. It says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son as redeemer and savior. In his son and through him, he invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, his adopted children and thus heirs of his blessed life. All right, a ton to unpack here, but I wanna, uh, I'll keep it brief. And I just want to mention a couple things here. Number one, God's infinitely perfect. He doesn't need us. It's out of a plan of sheer goodness that he freely created us. And why? Why did he create us? Well, the catechism tells us to share in his own blessed life. And we see this again at the end that the whole point of our existence is to become heirs of the blessed life of God. Now, if you think about this, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve had this, this perfect love with God, or at least as perfect as it could be for them at the time, and this perfect love with each other. And then, of course, the fall happens. But God has a plan right away. He's not going to leave humanity in darkness. What he's going to do is he's going to send his son so that we can re-inherit, if you will, our original destiny. But notice, it's not the same destiny as Adam and Eve had. Um, if we think about this in, in Genesis, Adam and Eve were happy with God, but they didn't see God fully face to face. They didn't have what we call in Catholic theology, the beatific vision, where we see God fully. But because of what Christ did on the cross, now when we get to heaven, we will experience the fullness of God. In Catholic theology, we call this either theosis or divinization. But essentially what it means, to quote the catechism, it says, God became man so that man might become God. So we have to be careful with this verse that we don't think we'll, be, we'll all be separate gods floating around in heaven, or that we'll somehow lose our individuality and we'll become this one kind of God blob in heaven. 
what this essentially means, theosis or divinization, which I think is probably the most important teaching that we can teach, is that when we get to heaven, we will fully participate intimately, perfectly, deeply, profoundly, in as much as we can as human beings, in the divinity of God himself. That's our destiny. As the Catechism shows us here, God is constantly searching for us, drawing us close, so that we can experience this destiny. It's very clear that we're scattered and divided by sin. You know, and God himself wants to bring us back into his flock, the church, in order that we might experience the fullness of his divinity. All right. If you're tracking along, we're going to go to Catechism, paragraph 4. And here we have this word catechesis. So you might ask the question, well, why is it called a catechism? Well, catechesis is a word that essentially means to echo. Okay, so if you imagine standing on a mountaintop and you scream something and it echoes back to you, it's the same exact word that you screamed, but it's just echoing back, right? I don't pretend to know how that works. I'm not a scientist, but it works if you've ever done it, right? So catechesis essentially means to echo the words of Christ. So catechesis is teaching. Um, In fact, we have kind of an office of, of catechesis, if you will, in the Catholic Church. Catechists are those who teach or hand on the faith. But notice that they're not teaching what they believe the faith to be. They're teaching what's been handed on to the church over the centuries from the mouth of God, right? So when we talk about catechesis or when we talk about the catechism, What we mean is we're echoing throughout the ages the words that Christ gave us, the divine words, the words of salvation, through scripture, and as we'll talk about in another class, also through tradition. All right, so Catechism 4 says, quite early on, the name catechesis was given to the totality of the church's efforts to make disciples, to help men believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that believing they might have life in his name and to educate and instruct them in this life, thus building up the body of Christ. So when we talk about the catechism, that's all we mean, is we're echoing the words of Christ. But why? Why do we do that? The catechism tells us here, to help men believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that believing they might have life in his name. That's the entire point. We're going to keep going back to this. That the entire point of the church's teachings is not for old men in pointy hats to just make sure you have no fun. It's not for us to regulate everything as a church. What it is meant to do, the teachings of the church, are they are meant to be these these guide rails, if you will. If you think about bowling, um, and I'm pretty terrible at bowling, so oftentimes I'll use the gutters, right, which is totally cheating, but I do better with it, obviously. Um, We can think of the teachings of the church as these guide rails, so to speak, so that we can have a straighter line to Christ, right? They keep us grounded. They keep us in reality. And they help us to know what Christ taught so many years ago because they are echoing his words. All right, let's move on to Catechism 11, where we talk about the aim and intended readership of the catechism. So it says, This catechism aims at presenting an organic synthesis of the essential and fundamental contents of Catholic doctrine as regards both faith and morals, in the light of the Second Vatican Council and the whole of the Church's tradition. 
All right, let's stop there for a second. So this catechism, what it's doing is presenting an organic synthesis of the essential and fundamental truths of the faith. Um, we would call these doctrines, right? So we're going to be talking about doctrines. We're also going to be talking about dogmas. And we'll go over the difference between a doctrine and a dogma as we go through. But we'll be talking about the teachings of the church in regards to faith and morals. We're also going to be doing this in light of the Second Vatican Council. So the Second Vatican Council, for those who aren't aware, there's been many, many different councils throughout the history of the church. This is typically a council typically uh, gets together, at least historically, to uh, denounce a heresy that's going on at the time. But there can be other reasons that a council is called. So the Second Vatican Council really was called in order to help us in our evangelization efforts, help us to evangelize the world, help us to realize once again our mission as a church, which is to bring all people into the light of Christ to make them disciples, right? So we're going to be looking at the church teaching in light of the Second Vatican Council and in light of the whole of the church's tradition. So as we go through the catechism, you're going to see quotes from all sorts of councils, from church fathers, from saints. They've got it all, all right? And of course, from the liturgy and from the church's magisterium. We'll talk about that word magisterium in an upcoming class here. Um, but just very briefly, magisterium just is the teaching authority of the church, all right? The teaching office of the church. We'll go more in depth into that later. All right, so let's talk about the structure of the catechism quick. So there are four different pillars or parts of the catechism that we're going to be going through. And again, we're not going to go through the entire catechism. In other words, every paragraph of the catechism in this class, but we're going to be hitting the highlights. So part one is the profession of faith, where we're going to be going over the creeds. Um, more specifically, we're going to be going, we're going to be talking briefly about the Apostles' Creed, but mostly focusing on the Nicene Creed. All right, we'll talk about that in a couple classes. Part two is on the sacraments of faith. So here is where we talk about the liturgy as a whole, the Mass, and also the seven sacraments that were instituted by Christ. Part three is called the life of faith. And this is where we're going to talk about, um, I love how the catechism puts this in, in catechism paragraph 16. It says the third part of the catechism deals with the final end of man created in the image of God. Well, what does that end? It says it's beatitude, meaning ultimate happiness with God. That's our end, is that we're ultimately happy with God forever in heaven. That's the third part of the catechism. It deals with our final end of being created in the image of God, beatitude, and ways we can reach that happiness. And we do that through the teachings of the church around morality. So here we're going to talk about God's laws, of course, the commandments, but then the twofold commandment of loving God and loving your neighbor. All right, so that's part three. Part four is all about prayer. So again, if we learn a lot of stuff, that's great. But if we're not entering into relationship with God, then we've missed kind of the bulk of what we're trying to do here. And so there's an entire section of the catechism. In fact, when I went to school at Franciscan, I had to write like a 60-page paper on this whole section. Um, there's a lot you can glean from it. It's mostly going to be talking about the Our Father. But that's the fourth part of the catechism or pillar, if you will, is prayer. So to summarize... We have four different parts of the catechism that we're going to be looking at. 
the profession of faith or the creeds, what we believe, the sacraments, how we live it out, the life of faith, our morality or living a moral life in Christ, and number four, prayer in the life of faith. All right, I'm going to share quite a few catechism quotes now here with you because this is a whole section in the prologue of the catechism on how to use the catechism, which is really important. So it says in paragraph 18, this catechism is conceived as an organic presentation of the Catholic faith in its entirety. It should be seen, therefore, as a unified whole. Numerous cross-references in the margin of the text, as well as the analytical index at the end of the volume, allow the reader to view each theme in its relationship with the entirety of the church or of the faith. So this is really important that as we read the catechism, we're not just cherry picking verses out of it, but that we're viewing it as a whole, that this is the faith of the church. And then we can dive a little bit deeper into specific topics. All right. Paragraph 19 says the texts of sacred scripture are often not quoted word for word, but are merely indicated by a reference For a deeper understanding of such passages, the reader should refer to the scriptural texts themselves. Such biblical references are a valuable working tool in catechesis. So I mentioned those three Bible verses at the very beginning of the catechism. Um, What's helpful there is you have a little footnote where you can go down to the bottom of the page and you can see what part of the Bible those came from. But oftentimes it's just going to quote from scripture without giving you where where it's coming from or even the whole quote. And in those cases, it's really helpful to look down at the footnote and look up that Bible verse in its its entirety so you can see the context. All right, you're going to see some small print in certain passages. This indicates observations of a historical or apologetic nature or supplementary doctrinal explanations. All right, so whenever you see small print, pay close attention to that. Uh, That just is kind of calling out that very specific verse of the catechism or uh, quotation of the catechism, if you will. So pay attention to that small print. The quotations, which are also in small print, from patristic, liturgical, magisterial, or hagiographical sources are intended to enrich the doctrinal presentations. These texts have often been chosen with a view to direct catechetical use. That's coming from uh, paragraph 21, what I just read from. So, Also pay attention to the quotations, which are in small print. Those are coming from church fathers, from the liturgy, from the magisterium. So pay close attention to those. At the end of each thematic unit, a series of brief texts in small italics sums up the essentials of that unit's teaching in condensed formula. This is from paragraph 22 of the catechism. All right, so at the end of each thematic unit, these in brief summaries may suggest to local catechists brief summary formula that could be memorized. All right, so at the end of each major thematic section or unit, you're going to have these in brief sections, which just very nicely ties it up in a bow and gives you in just a couple sentences, here's what we just talked about. These are really helpful if you find the entire section to be too much to chew. You can go kind of to the end of it, look up the in brief, and get kind of a summary of what's going on. And finally, today we'll end with this. This is from paragraph 25, where it says, above all, charity. So it says, to conclude this prologue, it is fitting to recall this pastoral principle stated by the Roman Catechism. The whole concern of doctrine and its teaching must be directed to the love that never ends. Whether something is proposed for belief, 
for hope or for action, the love of our Lord must always be made accessible so that anyone can see that all the works of perfect Christian virtue spring from love and have no other object than to arrive at love. In other words, what I've been saying the whole time, everything that this course is about is falling more deeply in love with Christ. The entire reason we have a catechism is to fall more deeply in love with Christ. And it's it's explicit here in Catechism 25. All right, let's end there for today. Thanks for listening. Know of my continued prayers for you, and may God bless you now and always. 